So yeah, my name's Rich, and, and uh, I got my wife Kirsten, and my daughters Rachel and Brooke with me this morning, and, and uh, I've known Sean for so long, and, and uh, we've always agreed upon God's grace and, uh, and how it's everything, and, and uh, how do you come to it, how do uh, you live in it, how are you saved by it, how are you sanctified by it, and, and uh, where a lot of churches make it a lot more difficult than it has to be. So uh, Sean and I have always seen eye to eye there. And um, I've been an assistant pastor at, at uh, Calvary Church down uh, a little further south from here, Mile High Calvary, for quite some time. And, and uh, last year, God kind of told me that we'd be planning a church in Denver. And my response was, who? You know, and, and uh, I'm like, if that's real, God, you better be the one telling Kirsten, because I'm not going to tell her that uh, we're going to be going to do this. And, and sure enough, like six months later, she comes into the room one day and said, do you ever get the feeling God wants us to plan our own church? And I'm like, ah, shoot. <laughs> and uh, I guess it's real. It wasn't just bad Mexican food, you know. And, and uh, so we just started praying together about it and, and uh, I already asked Sean. He, he was like, tell him about the church, don't worry. And, and uh, so don't, don't think I'm trying to like pilfer you guys or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, we just started praying about it and the next week she comes in, I think God gave me the name of the church and, and I'm like, oh, I know, he already gave that to me too. And, and uh, sure enough, it was the same exact name and, and uh, so Living Hope Fellowship and, and then... Uh, I'm like, all right, now where God gave us a heart for the city, for, for the city of Denver, and and uh, so, but Denver is pretty big, as you know, right? It goes all the way from like Bellevue and I-25 up way north, and and uh, so we're like, where where do you want us, God? And and then He gave us the exact same spot too, just prayerfully, uh, just seeking Him in that, and and uh, so we're going to be starting just a prayer meeting. We're just going to start with prayer, and uh, we're going to start start getting together with some people that. Uh, that God's put it on their heart to, to reach the city as well. So that's going to be the, just the week after Easter. We're going to start that. Um, and uh, we're, we're super excited. It's right over by DU. That's the, the area that he's called us to. I guess there's some people that need, need some love over there. A lot of people that need some love over there that we're finding. And he had us move to the area, start a new job. I'm also working another job. We're starting this church and just all kinds of exciting things going on and, and uh, in our lives right now. So we just appreciate your guys's just prayer too, just for the city, just along with us as we just seek to get in it and and uh, just reach these people and disciple them and and uh, hopefully multiply and send you know start other churches and and uh, send some people out. So just tell them about Jesus and, and that you don't have to have this doctorate in theology to do this. I'm like, uh, you remember that verse about foolish things going out to, you know, do things for the Lord? That's the little pictures next to it with my my face on it. So. It's uh, it's pretty exciting. So, uh, and he also wanted Sean also wanted me to just invite you guys if you do want to come out and pray for the city. Uh, we're gonna start. We're gonna be meeting at the Evanston Center. It's this uh, crazy community center that uh, used to be United Methodist Church, but they've got this cool chapel in it now, and and uh, some areas for like the kiddos and everything else. And and we're gonna just start gathering together and, and praying in the evenings, uh, Sunday evenings, April twenty eighth at uh, five thirty p.m. We're gonna do some food, get the grill out, and have some dinner too. So. If you guys want to come on by, we'll uh, we'll uh, be sure to give you a burger and and uh, put you to work praying. So um, if you guys have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, knowing Sean as well as I do, I expect like everyone to have at least something here. So um, John four is where I'm going to be uh, going through today, and uh, just behind McDonald's and Subway, 
KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, is the third largest growing restaurant food chain in the world. And the secret to this uh, franchise's uh, success, I was looking into it, doing a little research this week, happens to be their way of just altering their, their finger-licking-good recipe uh, throughout the world to, to meet the, the taste, the unique taste of every region that it puts a, a restaurant into. So here we get the, the good leaven herbs and spices and the mashed potatoes and the gravy and the green beans and the coleslaw. Is it too early to make you guys hungry yet? I'm sorry, but uh, I'm making myself hungry here. But uh, they, they do that to, to accommodate the, the local taste buds. They, they change it up on and, and what they offer. Um, so much so that you know, Colonel Sanders is just either smiling down from heaven or rolling in his grave, I'm not sure which, by how just like different it is around the world. So my message today, I, didn't <laughs> I, I actually didn't give it a title, but the title here soon that you'll see is Put Cheese on Your Buns. And uh, it's going to seem bizarre until I explain it here. It might still seem bizarre, but for example, in China... So you know in America we've got the filet fish right? Everybody is embarrassed to say they love that thing. They've got the wrappers in their backseat and everything else. But they've got a shrimp version. It's a shrimp burger. It's like all compact shrimp, like fake shrimp or whatever you know that they make into a sandwich. And that's, that's their prize, like biggest selling burger in China at KFC. In the Philippines, and this is where I got the sandwich name. I couldn't think of anything else. They put me on the spot. So, you know, burgers, we put their cheese, you know, we put the little chicken sandwich, and then we put the cheese, and then the bun and everything. They put the cheese on top of the bun, and then melt it, and then wrap it up and give it to you. So, I just thought that was really strange and unique, but evidently that's a Filipino thing. And uh, in Australia, of course, they serve a nacho bowl in Australia. That's like the biggest selling thing for KFC in Australia. Now, here's my favorite. In many parts of Asia, there's something called the cheesa. Oh. So instead of a crust, they have a fried chicken, like a flat round piece of fried chicken, and then they put all the pizza toppings on it, then they pour nacho cheese over the top. And I'm like, I've never really been wanting to go to Asia until now, like until I found out about the cheesa. Now I'm pretty excited. But look it up. It's a thing. There's images on Google. It's fantastic. In Philippines, they also do something called the double dog Double down dog. We've all heard about the double down burger here. They actually do a hot dog that's wrapped with chicken, you know, fried chicken as the bun instead of uh, like bread. I'm like, dude, now Philippines I want to go to too. This is amazing. So, and then finally in Singapore, the name and taste of mashed potatoes just didn't translate well. It didn't jive with them, and and uh, so they they actually serve something called whipped potatoes. And they add gravy and cheese to the mashed potatoes so you can't actually taste the styrofoam bowl it comes in like we do here in America. Have you, has everybody else noticed that? Or is it just me? It just tastes like styrofoam. Um, but yeah, we've all loved to learn to, to love and adore that in America. But in every country, and if every country, has their own you know, take on Colonel Sanders and his recipes here, uh, his finger-licking good chicken, then it shouldn't surprise us that every people group has their own unique take on the bread of life, we'll call it. So KFC's example of how they're so successful around the world really teaches us that even if or when you have a winning recipe, you still have to adjust it to the varied, you know, the, the taste of those that you're serving. 
So how this message is uh, delivered can make all the difference in how it's received. Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 9.22 says, To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And now in John 4, we're going to read about Jesus encountering somebody very different from himself. Um, probably someone who puts you know, cheese on top of their hamburger buns um, and shows us God's heart in an amazing way uh, to share his love you know, with at least the most like, unlikely of people. So let's start out with some prayer here. Uh, Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for this uh, just awesome group of people that you brought together to, to worship you, to hear your word um, just taught, Lord. There's such power in it, and uh, I pray of all the things I say this morning, Lord, as I read your word, I pray that it will go out just powerfully, uh, just impact all of our hearts, Lord, so that we'll leave here looking, sounding more like Jesus, Lord. So we give you this time. Pray that your Holy Spirit will do a mighty work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So arguments broke out. Does that sound bizarre? Arguments don't happen in churches, do they? Never. So what did Jesus do? He could have ended that argument, right? He was pretty good at that. I've seen him do it a time or two. But you can, can you ever really win an argument with just incredibly blinded, prideful people? No. So he took off. He didn't have time to deal with that garbage. There was people who needed to know that God loved them. There were, there were students who just needed to know their value and their identity was in him and, and not just outward appearance. There were so many people that just needed his love, needed his touch. So he took off. And in verse 4, it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. Did you notice it said, had to pass? It didn't say, so he passed through Samaria. It says he had to pass. Sure, it's the shortest route to get from Jerusalem up to Galilee. If you're just going straight up, you know, Jerusalem's down here in Israel, and, and the Galilee region's up here, and Samaria's kind of right in between. But Jews for years were crossing over the Jordan and then going up and doing this huge loop just so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. And uh, the, these two people groups, these two groups just hated each other so much. And it was because, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before, uh, a remnant of Jewish people who were actually kind of into idol worship, not kind of, how are you just kind of kind of into idol worship? They were into idol worship. We'll call a spade a spade here. Um, they were into idol worship. They were actually left in this region, the Sumerians, by the Assyrians who invaded Israel and, and kind of took over the country. So they would leave like the sick and the elderly and, and uh, some people behind in a region and then miss, you know, just transplant everybody else out of there. And uh, so there was this Jewish remnant uh, left behind there. And these people blended the Jewish law that they had, that they were given, with other pagan religions and customs and things like that, that the people, you know, the Syrians brought in. They mixed with them, procreated, and became just this melting pot of just customs and beliefs that were just kind of this weird 
um, something resembling Judaism, but very far from the truth. And the result was this just deep prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, so I'm sure that when Jesus told his disciples that, you know, this is the way we're going, they were like, oh, come on, Jesus. Really, we have to go through Samaria? And uh, they were pretty upset, I'm sure. So, But uh, obviously, Jesus knew something they didn't. So in verses 5, it says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now Jacob's well is still there today. Um, it was a, called, a town called Sychar, and uh, today the town is still there. It's a town called Nablus. It's one of the only landmarks in all of Israel that there's no dispute over. You know, if you go over there now, they're like, no, I think it was on this side of the, you know, the tree. No, I think it's over here. But this is the, one of the few places that nobody disagrees on. And um, Jesus and his disciples were traveling now for a couple days out in the desert. So when it says he was tired and wearied, you know, they really were uh, walking that whole time. And it says there was the sixth hour. Who knows what time that was? Noon. Not a good time to be out in the desert. Um, so Jesus, the Messiah, he was hot and tired. Is anybody here tired this morning? Yeah, I made the coffee extra strong this morning, just in case you are, just a little heads up. But, but we have a sympathetic high priest who's been there. Just a little nugget to, to hang on. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus sat down next to the well while his boys went into town to find a Taco Bell. Don't judge, I'm sure somebody gave him a gift card, it's cool. Um, but unfortunately, he left his bucket with a 75-foot rope in his other robe so he couldn't get any water, you know. I guess, I don't know what you would do. So the creator of Niagara Falls had to ask for a drink of water. Now, why was this woman coming to the well at noon? We'll see in scriptures and other places that women would go to the well like early in the morning, first thing, or late in the evening, and uh, get water and, and uh, bring it back to their households just to avoid the sun, the, the heat of the day. But we'll read that this woman lived in a town that was way too small for her reputation. She was a threat to every woman in that town because she had been married five times and now was shacking up with a guy that was not her, her husband. So this is the person that Jesus waited for at the well, the outcast, the reject, the woman filled with shame so that he could restore her. He saw her value when everyone else just, just wanted one thing from her. We see God's heart here in a major way, and it's just really, really awesome. And that's why I wanted to teach on this passage this morning. So verse 9 goes on to say, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so regardless of the way that I read that, 
or the translation that you're reading, I'm sure you can kind of pick up that there's a serious attitude here, right? This is a woman who for sure has been taken advantage of in life, used and abused. That plus just women in general were treated like dirt back then. Jewish and Samaritans alike. And then Jews and Samaritans being sworn enemies. Talk about your perfect storm here. Like, What are you talking to me about? But she didn't know Jesus yet. Jesus, who's the hero of the story that he told in Luke 10? The good Samaritan. Not a Jewish priest, but a Samaritan. A guy who was rejected by everyone else, but found by the Lord. Who's the one leopard, remember in Luke 17, that came back of the ten uh, lepers that were healed? Who was the one that came back and thanked Jesus? It was a Samaritan. He was more grateful than anyone else. And then when the church later on in Acts is persecuted and scattered out of Jerusalem, the first place God sends them is to Samaria. Go to the Samaritans, he says. Go tell them the good news. God loved the Samaritans. And I know he loves Denver too. Jesus answered her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus told her, if you knew who I was and what I could be offered, you'd be asking this guy without a bucket for a drink rather than me asking you for one. In one sentence, Jesus addresses her, her need, got her a little curious, and told her how to find a life worth living. To a woman in the heat of the day, just thirsty in her heart, Jesus was talking about living water. So just like KFC's menu around the world, Jesus varied his own message about himself and about God's kingdom to to different people in different circumstances. Uh, You might remember from John 3, the chapter right before this, to Nicodemus, this tired older man. What does he talk about? Being born again, that new life. To the blind, he talks about being light of the world. He was going to make uh, Peter and John fishers of men. And then to Mary and Martha, when their brother Lazarus had died, Jesus told them, I am the resurrection and the life. And now in the current passage, Jesus will sit at this well, sun beaten down in the heat of the day, and talk about living water. Don't we serve an amazing and creative God? Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Our father Jacob. All right. He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of of water welling up to eternal life. Oh, you're thinking of water in this well? I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, the well of life that will spring up inside of you, Jesus is telling her. This water will only satisfy for a little while, which this woman is painfully aware of. We're so blessed in this country to be able to just walk over to the sink the toilet, have 
fresh, clean water whenever we want. Can you imagine having to start your day every day carrying a bucket a mile away and, and filling it up and carrying that heavy bucket back to your house just to survive? And this woman was doing it in the middle of the day in the desert heat. I think she was right here hoping that Jesus had invented indoor plumbing. But there was something, believe it or not, much, much better. The Lord is, is slowly, as he's talking to her here, taking her from the physical to the spiritual. Something good to something excellent. And that's how the life of a follower of, of Christ should be. Good to excellent. We're saved by God's grace, which sure is good. And as we get to know God, learn to t- depend on him for everything, experience that life of grace that he meant for us simply by humility and by faith, it keeps getting better and better. That's something this world can't argue with you about. What can the world offer that keeps getting better and better in time, with time? Well, red wine. That was the one like loophole I found in, uh, in this analogy. But you drink it and it's gone, you know? So uh, the world can't, the world has nothing. So uh, I thought that was pretty funny. I was like, there's nothing. I, I just wanted to make sure. I did a little research, like, is there anything that gets better and better in time besides my salvation and my walk with God? Red wine, oh shoot. <laughs> I think there's a country song about that. Um, but if you're not experiencing a life that is becoming more and more excellent, that's more and more at peace, that's more and more joyful, that's less and less sinful, that's, you know, getting better in time, that's more fruitful, I'd suggest that you're not living by God's grace, but living in your flesh. As we follow and allow Christ to live in and through us, his character and his life just comes through, and it's noticeable to a dry and thirsty land. Jesus was offering this to her now. So verse 15 says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's hooked. She's, she's ooh, I want that. I want that. She's asking for what he's offering, but still thinking a little bit about just making her life a little easier, um, not having to come there every day at noon. So Jesus now takes her to the next step. Before we can be saved, what needs to happen? Yeah, we need to acknowledge that we need saving. We need to confess that we're sinners. It's a crucial step. A lot of us just like to share the good news that Jesus is alive and that, but what did he come to save? He came to save us, sinners. And he identifies this huge chip on her shoulder and helps her to see her sin. So, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, her, answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now, I'm sure he didn't say it like that. He was nice. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So in the wise words, of the not-so-prolific musicians tag team. Whoop, there it is. You know, he, uh, there's no skirting the issue anymore. Uh, she knows now that God knows. Notice her answer got really short there. I have no husband. 
right here, Jesus could have just ripped her down and uh, torn her apart over, over her lifestyle over the so many years. Five husbands, it couldn't have been all their fault. Let, let's talk about what you contributed to those five uh, marriages, you know? And, and uh, you know, shacking up with some dude now, why don't you go find your own apartment? Then we'll talk, okay? You know, that's, that's like the, the counseling way, right, that we, we jump into. no. Sin had torn her apart enough. He didn't have to drag her through the mud anymore. He just simply said, you are right in saying I have no husband. What you have said is true. Notice he complimented her twice. He was, he was so kind. He didn't beat around the bush, but he did treat her with kindness and with love. He brought her forward. And if Jesus opened up a counseling <laughs> like practice today, it would be out of business in like a minute because, you know, he just, he got to the heart of it. He got, he got to people's hearts so quickly. He quickly got them to admit their sin and their need of a Savior in minutes, not weeks and, and months of, of, of multiple sessions. And, you know, people's lives of self-dependency and worldly living were replaced by God's grace with an abundant life of peace and joy and holiness by abiding in him. So the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Boy, I guess things were getting a little real here for her because a little hitting a little too close to home because she totally changes the subject. Did you see that? This has happened to me quite a few times when witnessing to people. It's just been amazing. Like, you just uh, you, you get to share in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. This happened to me once on a business trip. I'm bivocational, so I work full-time and, and do the pastor thing also. And, and uh, one time on a business trip, I was just hanging out with this guy after dinner, and, and we were talking about I was just sharing the good news of Jesus. And, and uh, I, I swear to you, this guy was about ready to pray the sinner's prayer. It was amazing. And then all of a sudden he goes, you know, I just can't get past the whole Noah's Ark thing. I'm like, what? Where did that come from? Squirrel. And, uh, and you know, if all the animals were in one spot, how did kangaroos get to Australia? I, I just can't get past the kangaroo thing. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Jesus died for your sins. And and, uh, and he totally derailed the conversation. And, and, you know, we could just never get it back on track. It was so frustrating. And, and I still pray for that guy almost 20 years later. Um, but Jesus was much better than I was at <laughs> that kind of thing. He wasn't going to let her get away with it because he came for her heart. So Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Wow, that seems a little exclusive, doesn't it? It's true. If you want to argue who's right, the Jews were because they were entrusted with the gospel, the promise of the Messiah to come. So what he's telling her is, you're right, the Jews do have this. But, but he, then he goes on, he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So you, he's saying, you want to know where to worship. I want to tell you how to worship. It's not a matter of you worshiping at, at White Flag or DCBC or Living Hope Fellowship. 
It's a matter of your heart. You should be giving a shout of praise to God as the alarm clock goes off instead of cursing at it. I don't do that. Um, Worshiping God and thanking Him for that hot water that comes out of the shower head. Worshiping Him on the way you know, to work on the freeway that keeps you from yelling at other people and, and telling them they're number one and all that good stuff, you know? On your way home, before you go to bed, it, worship comes from our hearts. It comes from hearts of love and gratitude for God and, and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. I mean, that's a whole other message that we could spend hours on. But regardless, Jesus did not take the firm position of the Jews here. He didn't argue with her on that, of where to worship. So she softened a bit. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Hint, hint. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So now the woman has no way to argue. She's ready to throw up the white flag to surrender. See what I did there? That was good, huh? And those, but just right then, the stinking disciples come back with their taco supremes and gorditas. Man, this always seems to happen when God is about to do a great work. Have you noticed that too? You're sharing the gospel with someone and their cell phone goes off. They have to go. You know, the altar call and the baby starts crying and distracting everyone. That's what happens because there's spiritual warfare going on. Spiritual warfare for people's souls. Even now in this illustration with Jesus, the one doing the sharing, spiritual warfare is happening. So never stop praying. God is bigger than his enemies. So verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. No one's, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So they went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples were amazed that he was talking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. And although they said nothing, they must have made known their intentions. I mean, you could probably just, these guys weren't the best salespeople in the world, you know. I'm sure it was all over their face, like, what are you doing talking to this woman? Um, they must have made known their intentions because they just totally interrupted. They didn't, like, hang back and say, all right, Jesus is doing his thing here. They just jumped right in and, and uh, interrupted. And, and the woman didn't get a chance to respond. I'm sure her eyes got big, like, oh, man, oh, there's 13 of them. Um, her, water part, her water pot was actually left behind, and I don't know if she did that so Jesus would get some water or if she was just freaked out and just ran off. And, and, uh, but suddenly, physical water wasn't as important to her as it was before. Maybe the presence of this group of Jews frightened her. I don't know. But, um, but heading down the same dirt trial, trail that the disciples just came up, John tells us that what she declared when she came to the town... I love the description of the woman's heart because notice that the first thing she does is tell others about the Lord. These are the people that hurt her. These are the people that made her go to the well at noon in the first place. She was going to tell them the good news about the Lord. Tell them that God loves them. Come with me, she said. I've, never, I've met him. He's the Messiah. He laid out my whole life. He knows me. So with great love, she confessed that her life was changed. And in the Old Testament sense, 
she was really saved from her sin. And, and then she went into town and said that she had met the Christ. She'd come a long way in 20 minutes, hasn't she? Touched by God, she began to share so much that the town came out to invite the Lord to stay the weekend with them. Jews invited to stay in Samaria. You ever see the day? How thankful we are that the Lord loves us so much that he would go out of his way to come find us where we live. And if no one else cares about us, please remember that God does. If no one else comes to find us, he will. And if everyone else avoids us, goes around us, isn't a part of our lives, he loves us more than we could possibly know. We are in many ways like this woman at the well, just grinding away at life, hiding our hurts under a tough existence, a tough exterior in fear, living under isolation, sorrowful over our sins, and then clinging to this religious hope in which we really have no confidence. But in the midst of her despair, Jesus sat at the well and showed her himself. And as a result, she found life. So in closing, Jesus went on to stay another two days. The verses go on to describe it. And it says that many were added to God's kingdom because of this woman's testimony. And as the town of Samaritans uh, was coming out to the well to see this man that the woman was talking about, Jesus would use the opportunity to tell his disciples, look up, see that the fields are ready for harvest, that they're white for harvest. These Jewish boys probably caught just a ton of flack just to buy lunch in this town, you know, from the uh, from these people, and, and I'm sure the very guy who just yelled, no soup for you, is uh, wake, walking up to them now to check out the Messiah. And if you're too young to know what that reference is, there's this show called Seinfeld while you were watching Spongebob. You know, there's this really cool show on in the 90s, and yeah, never mind. But uh, what does Jesus tell them and show them now? That the fields are white. What does this mean? I know I'm talking to a bunch of city folk here. Uh, the closest to uh, farming we get is using miracle Grow on our mar- marigolds, right? So uh, I'll explain a little bit what that means. It's, it's quite simple. Grain, like wheat, starts green. It grows up green. And then when it's ready for harvest, it turns a very light color, like a, almost a color of white uh, when it's time to reap. So now for the, the metaphor of why the fields were white, First of all, these people, why did he call them that? These people were lost. Remember the time when the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled to Jesus about eating with sinners? He told the parable about the lost sheep after that. How a good shepherd, although he would have a hundred sheep, would pursue one sheep that strayed away until he found it. Jesus knew about these lost sheep for quite some time in Samaria. But when he saw the opportunity to find them, he had to go through Samaria. And the fields were also white because the people were interested. There are many people around Denver who are lost, but are all of them interested? No. But I would suggest that there are many. It might not seem that way, but I would suggest there are many. They might not be wandering into our churches on Sunday mornings, but but as we, the church, Meet them where they're at, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, on our kids' soccer fields, in coffee shops, 
as we lovingly break down their misconceptions about God, I'm finding that so much in Denver, like more than anywhere else I've lived. We've only been here for a month and a half now, and there's so many people that just grew up in, in these churches that I don't know what they were teaching them, but they have such great misconceptions about God, but it's our jobs to go to them and break those down, sharing the truth of, of God and, and uh, the love of Jesus here. Um, they think God is just judgmental, just unloving, uncaring, uninvolved. But people get curious. As Tim Keller puts it, they start doubting their doubts when God uses us to break down their prejudices, their stereotypes, their hypocritical beliefs about Jesus Christ and his followers. And the people came out of the, of the city to the well because they were, un, they were interested in, in what the most likely of witnesses was telling them. The fields are white for harvest. And maybe you feel like you're the most unlikely witness of Jesus, that nobody's going to listen to you, that nobody would uh, want to hear from me. But guess what? Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That was what Pastor Sean encouraged me when, when I told him that God called me to be a, a senior pastor and start a church. He's like, Ah, don't worry, you got this, you know, and, and I'm like, what, what am I doing here? And he's like, he just read me that verse, and I'm like, oh, I thought I was going to be the most unlikely witness to this town, you know, but, but it's, it's true, it all comes from God, and it's his righteousness. Um, whatever is in it that makes you feel like you're an unlikely witness, whether your lifestyle doesn't match your message, you're not so good at talking with people, or you don't know much about God's word, guess what? God's grace is sufficient for you. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those things will be added to you. So as you seek God, surrender to Jesus, he'll make you an effective witness. Because guess who will be doing the talking at that point? Not you, it's Jesus. The fields may seem as green as green can be around here, but God tells us there's some ready for harvest. We can't know if someone else has been planting seeds of truth with people. We don't know who God has been like pulling away the weeds and the birds and getting those rocks out of the way for our, our message of the good news. We might just be planting seeds and somebody else is going to come and lead them to Christ. Don't be discouraged. Regardless of where they're at, regardless of how argumentative, how angry and sinful they are, Jesus humbly came and died for them. And remember that we weren't any different on the inside before we knew Christ. Jesus spends two days loving on them, witnessing to them, and many more believed because of his word. Do you remember what Jesus' last words after his resurrection were, were before he ascended up to heaven on a cloud? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and and Samaria. And if Denver were a city 2,000 years ago, he would have probably ended that with, and in Denver. He loves this city. So I want to encourage you guys to go tell them that very thing. So pray with me. Father, thank you again for your love, for this message that just reminds us 
of how much you've forgiven us, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone in this room that just has unforgiveness in their heart, I pray that you will give them your heart, Lord, so that we can forgive and see them as you see them, Lord, love them as you love them, and not let anything hinder us from sharing your wonderful, awesome news of salvation, Lord. I pray that you'll make us all just effective witnesses of you, to, that you'll put people on our minds of who to go show love and just creatively tell of this awesome living water that you've given us, God. I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll help us to truly live that abundant life you've promised us, to just put our burdens and cast them on you, Lord, so that we can live a life that's just, uh, just free of any condemnation, that's free of uh, just those burdens that so often weigh us down, Lord. Just